This week on Unforgotten. This year marks 43 years since Carla Rebecca Corley was abducted from her home. And Carla didn't call Kat like she usually did. That's a lot of things to be knocked over for nobody to hear it. Rumors began to surface. A group of men had kidnapped her and then returned her to her mother. Sounds like he's trying to make sure that they know that he's on to him. Charles Braswell Pridgeton, better known as Dusty to his friend. Dusty had gone over to Mike's apartment. There she found Mike and his friend Dusty both shot. Someone called in to Crime Stopper had been out with a person that he says committed the murder. And never all back. On December 30th, 2021, Michael Richard was found shot to death inside a yellow Hyundai Sonata. He had amassed a pretty dedicated following by live streaming his nighttime adventures. It's a noticeable car. Somebody, I mean, you would see it. Hey everyone, this is Sellers. And this is Stormy. And And this this is is Unforgotten. Unforgotten. Where each episode will highlight unsolved missing, murdered, and suspicious death cases in Alabama in order to raise awareness and hopefully obtain some answers for victims and their families. Please remember that any individual referenced in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law. And any opinions or views expressed in the podcast are solely those of participants. Listener discretion is advised as some of the content discussed in the podcast may contain violence or graphic descriptions and may not be suitable for all audiences. Be sure to join our Unforgotten Patreon channel today to gain exclusive benefits, including early access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. By subscribing, you'll also be supporting the efforts of ACCA in assisting families in raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. And now for episode 22. Hey guys, and welcome back. Hey, Stormy. Yeah. I got a message from Dr. Holly this week. Yeah. And he was imparting some good Southern advice. Oh, nice. It's Dr. Holly's great. He is. It said, if you ever get lost in the woods in the South, find a possum and follow it. You'll be in the middle of the road in no time. Uh-huh. Oh, what great advice. That's I awesome. I said, well, that's accurate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to remember he's that. Always, that might work here, too. <laughs> I know. He's always sending some good life advice like that. Next time you talk to him, you have to say hello for me. I will. I will. Or if he's listening. I'll, Hi, Dr. Hiley. <laughs> I know. I'm going to tell him, hey, I used your um, life advice this week. Yeah. Awesome. So this week, we're moving into Jefferson County, which means we're a little bit over halfway through the Alabama counties. There's 67 in total. That's crazy. I know. It's hard to believe we've made it this far. I know we've skipped a few um, because we didn't have cases from those counties. Don't worry. We'll go back and get those. Yeah. And I'm sure that there will be plenty by the time we get all the way to the end. I know. The list just keeps growing. It does. And I feel bad when I realize, oh, no, we missed a county. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We do try to go, when we realize that we don't have a county on the list, we do try to check and see if there's any cases that are out there to kind of fill in that county on the way. Um, but we also didn't want to miss 
the names that we already have on our list or prolong those getting the attention because they were sent to us first. Um, So we promise we're not putting anybody off. We're just trying to do this in the most efficient way we can. Right. And, you know, there's a couple of counties that we have so many people in already. Um, Jefferson being one of them. Yep. That's what I was about to say. Jefferson is one of those. Yeah, so I think Montgomery you know, and Mobile, Mobile. are two yeah. other ones. Yeah, yep. we have a lot there. So we're going to do an extra episode in those counties, right? Yeah, just to make sure that we kind of get as much attention on those cases as we can, because we do have so many. It makes sense to kind of spend a little bit of extra time. Yep, and we've done that before anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think this is one of those things where we can just hit a county a week and be done just because I feel like we would be missing so many people. Yeah. And by the time we went back around a number of times, you know, they we still wouldn't be to the end of their lists. <laughs> right. Right. So. And Jefferson County, actually, it's 37th in the alphabetical list, but it's number one in terms of size and population. It's the biggest county in Alabama. Right. Um, yeah. It's huge, actually, and it's been in the news quite a bit lately yeah. with Birmingham. That it has. Um, we're just going to not talk about that. But <laughs> We don't need any soapboxes today. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> nope. Exactly. <laughs> Jefferson County is a captivating blend of natural wonders and a vibrant city life. Whether you're an adventurous explorer or a leisure seeker, there's something special for everyone. The bustling city of Birmingham pulses with life and energy, offering a myriad of opportunities for work and play. From the towering buildings that scrape the sky to the cozy cafes nestled in its streets, Birmingham is a city that never sleeps. For a more tranquil escape, dip your toes in the cool, refreshing waters of one of the peaceful lakes or meandering rivers. Or, if you're feeling a little more adventurous, Take a hike along the scenic trails or get out on the water for skiing, wakeboarding, or tubing, which is what we're going to do later today. That sounds like great fun. (laughs) But the heart of Jefferson County is its people. With the largest population in Alabama, as Sellers just mentioned, over 650,000 residents, you'll find a diverse and welcoming community that adds charm and character to every corner of the county. Birmingham, the largest city in Jefferson County, has long been a vital economic center for Alabama. It's also home to the well-known University of Alabama Birmingham Hospital, or UAB, one of the largest and most comprehensive academic medical centers in the southeastern U.S. They are phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. For some reason, I feel like we've mentioned them before, but I cannot remember where. We have, but I don't remember why we mentioned them, but we've talked about them before. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Now I got to search my brain after we're done. (laughs) Try to figure out where. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. With major highways, including I-65, I-20, I-59, and Highway 280, all the biggies, Jefferson County. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Jefferson County is an economic, cultural, and educational powerhouse for the state of Alabama. This year, Still, you, we keep talking about all these places. Sorry to interrupt, but I keep hearing all these places and I'm thinking, you know, I, I don't talk a lot about where I'm from, but 
I really want to go to Alabama to see all these places. <laughs> I don't. It hadn't turned you off yet. No, no. I mean, you know, we see the seedy side, but we also, see, you know, we talk a lot about these great places to go visit. And so, you know, one day, one day, I'm gonna, you're gonna get a knock on your door. <laughs> Come on. In all honesty, there are beautiful places in Alabama. I always give it a hard time because of what we talk about and because it's just not really well known. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not something that is highlighted for obvious reasons. And I think it needs to be, obviously. That's why we're doing this. But there are good things about Alabama. And I don't say that probably enough. But it really is beautiful because you have the coast and then as you travel north you've got the mountains um so you've got a little bit of both worlds and it really is beautiful yeah um especially like in the fall what fall there is Mm -hmm. um that's the weirdest thing for me (laughs) is listening to the seasons like they are down there we have one no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, how you said the summer is the rainiest season, I'm thinking, huh? <laughs> um, all we really have is summer. Mm. We have a we have a high summer and a low summer, and that's about it. Yeah, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> There's some variation in there occasionally, although I swear sometimes it's just getting hotter. Yeah, I'd love to see you guys get snow sometime. <laughs> yeah, I bet other people would too. <laughs> snow, snow. It's that white stuff. I don't like cold weather, though, so I'm probably in a good spot. Yeah, probably. This year marks 43 years since Carla Rebecca Corley was abducted from her home in Birmingham. It was the summer of 1980 in the area known as Eastwood Projects in Birmingham, located at the corner of the Birmingham Shuttlesworth Airport, and 14-year-old Carla was preparing to enter the 7th grade. Carla lived with her mother, Nelda Corley Leopard, and had a close relationship with her older sister, Kat, which is where we're going to get most of our information from because there's not a whole lot out there. Kat had moved out of the home by the time Carla was a teenager, but according to a 2012 WBRC interview with Kat, the two sisters had a routine of talking to each other every day at the same time, and they just kind of, what I imagine, caught up on each other's day and you know, what they've been up to. Right. And I actually yeah. really like they did that. Yeah. It's wonderful when siblings can do that as a habit from almost the get-go and just something that they always do. Some people do it all their lives. And one thing that I wasn't sure, because I don't think they mentioned it in the interview, I didn't see it, was exactly what the age difference was between Kat and Carla. Um, to know if she was significantly older than Carla. When she moved out, was she in her late teenagers, early 20s? Um, You know, what did she move out because she was an adult and kind of just moving on with her own life? Or was there other things that were going on, Um, which I would be interested in knowing about? Just, you know, kind of to get background information on what the family dynamics were like. Because what I thought was interesting was the fact that Carla and Kat did call and catch up with each other. But it doesn't really talk about that cat would call and talk to their mom. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk more about that, I think. Yeah. Because this routine is actually probably what caught the attention that something was wrong. And it made me wonder, 
if Kat hadn't had this routine with Carla that they regularly kept and were so strict with, would Carla have ever been reported missing? Right. Because on August 8th, that routine changed and Carla didn't call Kat like she usually did. So that prompted Kat to call their mother's house instead looking for Carla. And what Kat told WBRC was that she was told Carla was at a friend's house. But what she didn't say was that their mother told her Carla was at a friend's house. So Uh I would like to know who answered the phone also. Uh, It that could just be one of those things that's kind of implied that their mother told her that. But it just said, I called and I was told she wasn't there. She was at a friend's house. But that doesn't say that their mother was the one that told her that. Sure, sure. We do hear that a lot. You know, people don't realize they they take what they've heard as gospel, so to say. Especially when they're relaying a story, you think it's them that knew that, you know. And it's we found I found that it's very important to you know clarify. So mm-hmm. you know who told you that? You know was that something you heard directly from so and so, or did you hear that through right. you know another person, or you know did you witness it, or did you yeah. just hear about it? You know, Carla didn't call Cat the next day or the next day, and she wasn't available when Cat called their mother's house because mm-hmm. Carla wasn't calling her. She was still trying to get in touch with her. So on the fourth day, on August 12th, Kat contacted Birmingham Police Department and met a detective at her mother's home. And the situation took an even more bizarre twist. Nelda told the detective that she and Carla had washed some dishes and then she left Carla watching TV and went to bed. A few hours later, the sound of the TV going off the air woke her up, so she went into the room she'd left Carla in to check on her. She found chairs overturned, a soda bottle overturned, and the door to their home wide open. Carla's shoes were still there, but there was no sign of Carla anywhere. Can I just, can I just say something here? This is something that you and I have talked about before we started this is that's a lot of things to be knocked over for nobody to hear it. But yet the TV going off the air did. Especially if they can hear the TV. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that bothers me a bit. (laughs) And if you think about this was a housing project, so you don't imagine that the houses were very big. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure. I tried to find some information on the housing project. So it was a housing project and then it kind of changed. And I don't think it's there anymore. So I didn't really see anything describing how it was set up. So I don't know if it was like a, a, a duplex. I think it was. Because there was an article um, unrelated to this about a man, an African-American man who had moved into or was trying to move into the housing projects. And he had not fully moved in yet when he was met with a group, met by a group of men threatening him about moving in. It was a group of white men. And. He had not completely moved all his stuff in, so he had went to his previous place where he was living to get the rest of his stuff, and I'd have to go back and read it, but he stopped to talk to the rental agency about the issues he was having with this group of men that had approached him when he was moving in, and 
while he's there, the rental agent gets a phone call that this man's duplex has been set on fire and KKK has been written in multiple places inside of his unit. And it was a very long, drawn-out thing where the guys were eventually arrested and held responsible for this. And it kind of gives you an idea of what the dynamics were in the area at the time, too, looking at that. That tells me this was a predominantly white neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also maybe wasn't a very open-minded neighborhood. And possibly one of maybe a higher crime rate. Um, is obvi- it, with it being housing projects, it's going to be a lower income area. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking that if it's duplexes, then there's going to be an adjoining unit to Carla and Nelda's unit. But I don't know that for sure. Yeah. But either way, I just don't see this as being a big apartment type thing that they're living in. Yeah. So you would think with that kind of noise... Or that kind of commotion going on, if you're being woken up by the TV going off the air, then you're definitely going to hear chairs and things being knocked over. Mm-hmm. I mean, even a single chair, that'd be a pretty good thunk. Right. Uh-oh. There are some articles that report that this occurred around 4.30 a.m., the TV going off the air. But the 2012 article from WBRC is the most recent article that we've been able to find, and it doesn't reference a specific time. An AL.com article also stated that Carla's belt was found on the ground outside the home. That's not referenced in that 2012 article, and I didn't see it in the NamUs um, entry either. Hmm. So I'm not sure if that's accurate or not. Yeah, where that came from or if that was just something somebody said that news media got a hold of. But that's just something to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. There's also no reference to whether or not it was the front door or back door. But I'm going to assume that this probably was the living area that she walked into since it was where the TV was located. And this is in 1980, like we talked about, in a lower income area. And with the TV being in there, it's probably going to be closer to the front door. Mm hmm. Yeah, I would think. I mean, that's pretty typical um, layout. Yeah, which means probably street facing. Mm-hmm. That's what um, I'm picturing. I really would like to see kind of how the neighborhood was set up at the time, but yeah, because you would think neighbors or you know some somebody would have also heard something. But to me. Two, what stands out about this is that Kat had been trying to contact her for several days and had no luck. But her mom is saying that this occurred in the early morning hours of August 12th, which is like four days after Kat lost communication with her. Right. Yep. So is there a delay in reporting? Is that accurate when she was last seen? Who knows? Right. Kat told WBRC, I knew something bad had happened to her because there's no way Carla went that many days without talking to me. And having that relationship is, I think, what had this, what brought Carla's disappearance on the radar. Right. Yeah. 
And it makes like, you wonder how long it would have gone on had she not had that relationship. Have, yeah. Would it have ever been mentioned? Mm-hmm. Maybe. While Birmingham PD began their investigation, Kat contacted jails and hospitals and even went door to door and hoped someone had seen her sister. Shortly after Carla's disappearance, rumors began to surface that just days before Carla went missing, a group of men had kidnapped her and taken her to Lake Purdy, raped her, and then returned her to her mother's. Investigators considered that this could have happened the second time, but with a much different and more tragic ending, especially since they were investigating other similar cases in Birmingham at the time. That is really a bizarre accounting to me. And I, I know, and I don't know that that was ever confirmed, and I don't know how they would confirm it unless somebody came forward to admit it. Right, yeah. I mean, you would think with the case of somebody disappearing, they might take the information a little, uh, I'm not going to say a little more seriously, they may have very well taken it seriously, but um, made more action, you know, towards it. You know, you would think that if that had happened, her mom would have been able to talk about Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. And I just, I don't know, I, I could see maybe if similar things were going on, you know, it was prevalent and they just right. were overwhelmed with those kinds of accountings that maybe she might have got lost in the shuffle. But I really haven't seen anything really s- that supports that this was a prevalent thing. Yeah, I, but I also haven't done a lot of research into it to mm. see. Yeah. Be interesting to find out. Yeah. Yeah. Kat told WBRC she continued searching and contacting police about Carla's case for three years with no solid answers, Mm. until one day a new investigator was assigned. That investigator had never heard of Carla or her case, and it took a week to find Carla's file, which actually turned out to be a one-page incident report in a closed case file. That is not right. (laughs) That just, well, it kind of sounds like what we just heard, though. You know, if they weren't really pursuing it, they probably Mm -hmm. took a report from mom and that was it. Yeah. Hmm. An unnamed investigator reportedly close to the case told WBRC that information had been received that Carla had been seen around a green track in South Alabama, alive and well, and that she was, quote, doing what she wanted to do and was just a runaway. I don't really know what a green track is. I don't either. I might try to do a little quick is it like a, on that. Like a track? <laughs> I don't know. Did you run on? I'm not really sure. That's a new one. Uh, okay, here we go. Google says <laughs> <laughs> green track, also grass track or lawn track, is the type of railway track which the track bed and surrounding area are planted with grass or turf or other vegetation counter so or cover. Okay. So rather than like, you know, the standard you see, like yeah. kind of raised dirt in the the railroad, it's actually like I'm seeing a picture. It's actually, you can almost barely see the tracks. It's just all green and it's almost running through the middle of a town. Mm-hmm. A few years later, Nelda requested to have Carla declared legally deceased. And a few years after that, a potential suspect claimed he knew what happened to Carla, only to recant his story later. I'd like to know who that is. Yeah. 
Over the years, authorities have conducted several excavations, and at least as of the time of the 2012 interview, the most recent excavation was in 2005. At the time of that same interview, there were still no named suspects in the case. However, Sergeant Sam Novlet told WBRC, I have a suspect in mind. However, I lack sufficient evidence to file charges or make a public accusation. We know there are people out there who could close this case for us and find Carla, but they're either afraid to come forward and, in some case, they may be culpable in her disappearance. Again, hmm. we've talked about this before. They're talking to somebody. You know, they yeah. he explicitly said he had somebody in mind. Yeah, and it does. It sounds like he's trying to make sure that they know they're, he's on to them, you know. Mm-hmm. So over 43 years later, Carla still hasn't been found, and her case is still unsolved. At the time of her disappearance, Carla was 5'3 and weighed 130 pounds. She had brown hair and hazel eyes. She's believed to have been wearing blue corduroy pants and a navy blue blouse with a Peter Pan collar and a silver turquoise ring, and possibly carrying a brown knit purse. Well, our next case is also one of the older cases in Alabama, a 37-year-old homicide. Charles Braswell Pridgeton, better known as Dusty to his friends and Brad to his family. I don't know many people who have two nicknames. I guess Brad is kind of close to Braswell, but... Oh, yeah, yeah. I can see where that would come from. Yeah. My grandfather's name was Braswell. Huh. I'd never even heard that name until we were researching Dusty's. They lived in a very rural county, and that people called him Brazzle. Oh, oh uh, I like that. Or like that. in one case, somebody couldn't even say that, and they called him Sprazzle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, it's funny how names or things like that will evolve. It's almost like telephone. Uh, yeah, it was a joke. Mm-hmm. People called him Spraz. <laughs> so Dusty was 30 years old at the time of this terrible murder. And he was one day shy of his 31st birthday. The details are limited, at least in part, to the age of the case. We found only two articles, one in the Birmingham Post-Herald on July 3rd of 1986, two weeks after the incident, and one in the Birmingham News dated October 10th, 2008. And that was shared with us by his daughter, Melissa uh, Deason. But we did get a little background uh, about Dusty from Melissa, Laura Pridgeton, his sister, and, of course, his mother also. So here's a little bit about Dusty. He was born on June 20th in 1955 in a place called Jeff, Georgia. I thought that was cute. I've never heard I've never a heard city named Jeff. <laughs> no. Just Except south of it. Yeah, this was just south of Atlanta to... And he was born to parents C.A., which is what they called him, his father, um, or Curtis Arthur, and Gloria Pridgeton, who is now named Jones. Some of you may know the Georgia area, but for those who don't, there is a town called Pridgeton that was actually named for C.A.'s family. Oh, that's pretty so they cool. Were, yeah, they were pretty prominent, I guess, in that area somewhere. Dusty's father passed away about five years prior to Dusty, to the day, actually. June 19th, 1981. Oh, that's kind of I know. Sad. What a day. There's a, there's a lot of June coincidences in this family. I thought that was interesting. So many things, birthdays and, um, you know. Yeah. 
His mother is still with us. She and C.A. had divorced sometime in the 1970s, and she had remarried, hence the last name Jones. Dusty has two sisters, Angela and Laura, whom we mentioned a moment ago. Their mother tells her kids and grandkids a story that when Angela was born and Dusty was three, he asked to see his baby. I thought that was cute, that it was that his baby. Cute. Eleven months later, Laura joined the family, too, and he apparently then had two babies before he was even five years old. That's that really was, cute. Yeah. I love the big brother in him at that age. I thought I think that's just adorable. <laughs> There's also a story that goes with Dusty's nickname. With his family, Charles Braswell went by the name Brad. But one day, he and his friends were outside. There was a loud bang of some sort out in the yard, I guess. His mother told his sister to go see what it was. And she ended up telling her mom she didn't know, but it was dusty, dirty, and filthy. So apparently his friends must have thought that was funny and it stuck. So he was dusty going forward. That is hilarious. Mm -hmm. I guess that explains where that came from. Yeah. I thought maybe, you know, I don't know. Who knows why people are called some of their nicknames. Sometimes it's just a random thing, but yeah, that is kind of random. It's just very funny to me. <laughs> it is. Funny. I get to see this little this sister coming back and saying, "I don't know, but it was dusty, dirty, and filthy." <laughs> can, you, can you imagine? Uh, what a cute story. Um, Dusty did get married, and he had two children with his wife Carol. However, this is the start of some of the interesting. Uh, information that we heard. Um, Carol, he had told only a couple of days before this incident happened with him that he was planning to divorce her. Mm. And I don't think there's much I can elaborate on that, but it's just a point to, you know, note. The kind of things that were going on. Mm-hmm. Things are in this life, yeah. Back to the terrible day, though, when everything changed for Dusty and his family. Dusty had a friend he knew from a young age named Mike Donnelly, who also went by the nickname Mad Dog. I think that's funny because I I picture Mad Dog as this like great big burly guy with a beard and like redheaded and uh-huh. kind of like, a, what's that cartoon uh, with the big chicken? And I can't think of what it's meant. I can't think of what it's called. Um, you know what I'm talking about? It's a very old cartoon. <sighs> Yeah, the big chicken dude and the guy that always is mad. And mm-hmm. I cannot think of it right Longhorn now. Longhorn something. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, lo- is it Foghorn Leghorn or yeah, something like that? Something like that. Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> anyway, they both were into motorcycles, and that kind of that makes I guess, kind of sense. With Mad yeah, Dog, I guess. Mad Dog That's actually what I pictured. It was like biker person. Yeah. Yeah. Gloria mentioned that Dusty even had a motorcycle that he intended on restoring, but never got the chance to. I think that would have been really cool for him. It sounded like um, it might have been like a really old type of motorcycle, but she didn't really elaborate on what it was. But it was, I thought that was That neat. probably would have been a good project. Yeah. So on June 19th, 1986, Dusty had gone over to Mike's apartment on 10th Avenue South in the Lakewood area. According to news articles, Mike's apartment manager heard what they say was five shots around 9 p.m. on the 19th. But 
thought it was just kids shooting off fireworks or something. Hmm. The following day, she noted that Mike's car was still there when he normally would be at work, so she must have known him a little bit, and heard the dog whining in the apartment. She contacted the police while another tenant she had taken with her knocked on the unlocked door, and then they went in. There, she found Mike and his friend Dusty both shot, and soon they were confirmed to be deceased. So, was the door... I can't even imagine walking into that scene. No. I guess they knocked on the door, and then just, like, nobody answered, so they tried the door, and that's how they found out that it was mm-hmm. unlocked, I guess. There's a little bit more to that, and, I, you know, the timing of it, I am anxious to see some paperwork on it, Um to see yeah. when, like, the police report was taken. Mm-hmm. The family says, mentions that it was a very warm day mm-hmm. and that they had been there a while. Oh. And so there was some confusion whether it had been one or two days, but the counting says the next day. Yeah. So I don't know if the witnesses were off a day or if, you know, I don't know. I don't know what yeah. the deal is. Right. Um, and it doesn't mention, I think, in one one place... I think one of the articles says screen door and the other one just says door. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not sure if, you know, I'm not sure how that all unfailed. You know, she was also the apartment manager, so she could have had a key, you know. Right. So. Yeah. Well, it was unlocked is what it says. So. Yeah. So who knows? The 2008 article states that Mike was sprawled across the couch, legs hanging off, and Dusty was on the floor under Mike's feet. It states that it doesn't appear there was much of a struggle. However, this may not be accurate. The earlier article in July of 86, they noted that they were shot from behind. But according to the autopsy report that we're supposed to be getting soon, hopefully, there seems to be a different picture. It says that Dusty was sitting on the couch on his right side and his right foot was resting on Mike. So that leaves me to believe that the scene was opposite of what the article said. Hmm. that Dusty was actually on the couch and Mike was on the floor. When they moved Dusty, they saw what they as a defect on the right side of his head and that the blood had drained down onto the couch and soaked it. And it was mostly dry. So that's another thing that I'm finding curious, that it was mostly dry. So I don't know how long it takes for that to happen. Yeah. They said that they removed a bullet from the base of his skull. So back to... Possibly he was shot from behind, but there's a defect on the side of his head, so not sure how that kind of panned out. And the base. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that means there was two shots or, um, yeah, or the, hmm. the, or the angle was downward. I don't know. I don't, yeah. That... I don't want to get too graphic, but, you know. Sorry, I'm just thinking. Mm-hmm. Another one of these, how did this happen that way? I'm like, this is kind of odd. It's an interesting, yeah. The family relayed that they believe Mike was shot in the front and kicked over and shot several times. And where this came from, we're not really sure. Melissa mentioned that it was just something that she had heard probably from her mother and her aunt over the Mm -hmm. years. Um. So I'm not really sure where that or originated, and I might follow up with um, Laura and see if they she have can tell a copy me. of the autopsy report. That's they do. The, yeah, okay. she was. 
I haven't actually seen it in the email yet, but she was going to try to either scan it or take a picture of it and send it to us. Um, So she hasn't done that yet, but I'm hoping that she'll do that soon. But yeah, she kind of read from it and that's, you know, the basics, what was said, but I really would like to see the whole thing in context. Yeah. It's possible there wasn't a struggle, but from this information, it does seem pretty targeted. You know, the assaults seem pretty targeted. Right. And I guess, it too, it didn't look like there was a struggle in the apartment. Like, mm-hmm. Nothing looked like it was missing. It was yeah, just nothing was like stolen. Somebody, somebody came in and shot them. So that makes you think, okay, well, if there was nothing apparent missing, mm-hmm. then, which I, I sometimes I wonder how would you know? Yeah. If you don't know it was in the apartment to begin with. But um, it makes you think, well, robbery wasn't a motivation. Well, and that's, you know, what everybody kind of said formally, that robbery was ruled out as a motive according to what they were told from law enforcement in the beginning. Mm. Like you said, it's hard to know if anybody would know if something was missing. Um, There was mention that the apartment they lived in or that Mike lived in wasn't, um, I'll put it, wasn't tidy mm-hmm. uh, by any means. So, um, you know, it could be, they d- didn't even know if something was taken, right. but you know, their like their wallets were there and that sort of thing. So you would think that they would have taken those items if they were really robbing them. It is known that there was some drug use that happened in Mike's life. Um, and Dusty wasn't an angel. We can't say that he was in the same place in life with Mike, but it didn't seem so from what we've been told uh, by the family. Um, I think they, you know, would be readily admitting that, you know, he probably did some drugs. I know that one of them mentioned that he did use marijuana, but it sounded like Mike was maybe a little heavier into it. It's worth mentioning, you know, that those circumstances because that's a risk factor in homicide cases. Also in the articles, another tenant in the apartments had also told police that she had heard what sounded like five shots the night before and went to the window seeing a white male about five, ten or six feet tall. And side note here, I can't I'm not really sure how far she was from this person, because that would be kind of hard to tell from a distance, I think. But I guess she's trying to say that he was average to above average height, maybe. He was leaving from the direction of Mike's apartment and got into a large car near the dumpster and left. Well, this is interesting, but the sighting does kind of fall in line with the primary reason of the 2008 article. Because apparently back in 1986, someone called in to Crime Stoppers Hotline and stated that they had been out drinking with a person that he says committed the murders. After they had been drinking, they went to the apartments. He was sitting in the car waiting for his companion when he heard the gunshots and then got out of the car and ran away from the scene because he was freaked out by it. So he didn't know what they... I don't think he... It didn't sound like he knew why they were there. Uh, or if he knew why they were there, wasn't anticipating anything like this. Mm-hmm. The person didn't leave his name. Of course, he called into Crime Stoppers, so he was giving an anonymous, the anonymous tip. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it seemed like the investigation went nowhere. 
I don't know how much more information, of course, because they aren't going to reveal everything that he said. Right. So I don't, it didn't sound like maybe that they gave a name because I think they would have followed up more Mm -hmm. if there was actually a name. I think he kind of said a little bit and then just kind of was a little scared and left left what he could and then, you know, never called back. And never, yeah, that's what I was going to say, never called back, right? I remember reading that at some point. Right. Um, side note, Gloria, his Dusty's mom, mentioned there was a bar uh, kitty corner or across the street from the apartments that was very loud and busy. We were talking about, you know, the noise and how more people wouldn't have heard that because apartments are usually close together. Yeah. Um, but she says well, it's possible because the bar was really loud. Maybe it was just muffling, you know, making any noise noise might have just changed what they thought they heard and i guess if you were in yeah if you were inside the bar then maybe you wouldn't necessarily hear it or even you know like near nearby like if you were like outside and just kind of everything was kind of mixed together yeah so maybe this caused issues with people hearing the shooting but i'm kind of wondering as an aside if it wasn't a quick way to hide until this witness knew he had the, you know, the coast was clear. Right. Um, It's something that I think might bring up to an investigator if we ever get a hold of one. Right. Uh, Yeah. Just to see if they ever had any luck Mm -hmm. tracking down whoever that was. Because I could totally see if he was running away quick and trying to get out, you know, out of the area. But quick, you know, it would be hard to just run on foot somewhere without being noticed. So maybe running across to a busy bar would be easy to kind of hide in plain sight. Yeah. And you would always think that if he knew what happened, then he probably would be in some kind of state of shock mm-hmm. for a little while, too. Yeah, and yeah. there'd be some nerves associated with that. And anybody who potentially came in contact with this witness Might would have also noticed. have noticed some, like, jitteriness or nervousness. Yep, that's exactly what whatever. I was thinking. Um, so something to something to kind of look into at some point. According to the same 2008 article, the Birmingham police had formed a cold case unit in 2005. In 2008, when this article was written, Dusty's murderer was one of the cases that they felt at the time was very solvable based on what they had. And to me, that seems true. You know, it seems like there's an awful lot of information here. And, you know, the incident just seemed kind of, I don't know unique in its pieces of information. And it's a populated area. Yeah. Yeah. And with the bar across the street, aside from the muffling of the noise, there could have been witnesses too. Mm-hmm. You know, they could have seen people leaving the scene. They could have seen the car leaving the scene. You know, they could have been looking up at a window and saw what happened. I, you know, who knows? So, you know, because they thought it was sol- solvable, they pleaded with the public in the article with the anonymous caller specifically, to please come forward so they could get more information. However, it just appears that the silent witness never came forward. So it seems as far as the Prishan family knows, there's been no further developments. They've tried multiple times to get an update from the Birmingham cold case unit without an update, really. We have left two messages as well with the Birmingham Police Department with no response yet. However, his daughter, Melissa, was talking with me, and she had left a message right after we talked with the Birmingham Cold Case Unit. And 
we are pleased to hear that Detective Ross contacted her back. I was super happy to hear that because it was so, it was fast. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was like pretty almost immediately after Mm -hmm. she messaged him that he responded to her. And so he's going to pull all the records for the case from storage. Apparently it's in a, you know, separate building in storage and it's all hard copies. That's what happens when you got an older case, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And then he's going to review that and get back to her, you know, as soon as he's able. I think when you guys are listening to this out there, it'll probably be about the time he's pulling the case. So I'm not sure how, you know, how soon that will all take place. Hopefully, we'll have some sort of an update soon. It would be at least to know that he's gone through it. Yeah. Dusty's family has had so many wonderful things to say about Dusty and remember about him. He has two namesakes as well. His son, so Melissa had a brother, Dustin. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of named after Dusty, even though that's not his official name, who was two years old at the time his dad passed away. And his daughter, Melissa, she was only six at the time Dusty died, has had a son who she named Christopher Bradley, or Dusty's Mm -hmm. nickname, Brad. Thought that was nice that there was two, like, actual namesakes. That is really nice. Yeah. And also, when Melissa got married, her wedding day was held on June 20th, Dusty's birthday. When she messaged us originally, it was um, just before her wedding. Yeah, and I remember. she was telling us that it was going to be held on Dusty's birthday. And I just thought that was a really sweet way to kind of have a piece of her dad there, too. Absolutely. Yeah, that, I thought that was so wonderful. Side note, on June 20th is actually my father's birthday as well. Well, isn't that a coincidence? Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of June June dates in this um, family story. We are aware that there's more information and that we don't feel quite comfortable sharing yet. Um, and hopefully there will be even more once Detective Ross has a chance to review records. But with all of this information and all of the sweet memories that this family has of Charles Braswell Pridgen, Brad, or Dusty, as Mm -hmm. most of his friends know. So many names, but it's so wonderful that he is known so well. His murder is still unsolved 37 years later. His family is still looking for answers. And you all can help us keep his story alive by sharing it wherever you can. It seems that there is also a $20,000 reward that was established back in 2008, I believe for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Mike Donnelly and Dustin Prishan's murderer. If you or anyone you know has any information about the disappearance of Carla Rebecca Corley or the murders of Mike Donnelly and Dustin Pridgen, no matter how small or unimportant you think it might be, because nothing is too small to send in, please contact Crime Stoppers at 205-254-7777 or the Birmingham Police Department directly at 205-254-1764. Or you can submit an anonymous tip on the Crime Stoppers website, which will be linked in the episode description. For our last case, we're stepping into a more recent time period. On December 30th, 2021, 
46-year-old Michael Richard was found shot to death inside a yellow Hyundai Sonata, loaned to him while his own vehicle was being repaired. Born in Louisiana and raised in Hoover, Michael attended Barry High School through the 10th grade. According to an AL.com interview with his family, Michael was incredibly intelligent, but struggled with structure and social skills. There's also not a whole lot of information about Michael's case available online, um, so a lot of what we have comes from this AL.com interview that the family gave, um, and I think it took place about a year after his death. Wow. So he dropped out of high school in the 10th grade, but he later earned his GED and eventually a network engineering degree from Virginia College. However, even with those achievements, it took him some time to land a job, and his parents were basically supporting him. Ultimately, he obtained a position at a local Amazon packaging facility with hopes of working his way into the IT department. There was another side to Michael that intrigued many, a side that he showcased on the social media platform TikTok. Isn't this kind of a juxtaposition for all the cases we've been talking about? It seems so current, you know? He had TikTok and uh, social media. I know. And he had like 300 and something thousand followers, I think. He had a pretty large following. Oh, wow. Yeah. Under his username, Alone in the Dark, he had amassed a pretty dedicated following by live streaming his nighttime adventures to abandoned and eerie locations, Hmm. which is kind of interesting, actually. That is kind of an interesting way to form a. Apparently, this is, is kind of like a, a like community of people that do these things. There's oh. like chat forums and different things. Interesting. His brother commented in that interview that he felt like TikTok and the social media platforms kind of offered Michael a way to escape his own loneliness and connect with a community that shared some similar interests. Um, he said Michael really kind of thrived off the attention that he received from there because it allowed him to kind of be whoever he wanted to be, which we've talked about that before, that the internet kind of gives you that ability. It kind of takes away some of the vulnerability that you feel in real life when you're face-to-face with people and you're questioning, like, can they see all of these weaknesses that I feel I have about myself? You can kind of mask those yep, and be yep. a lot more confident behind a keyboard or a camera or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of the, also the thing is you never know who it is you're actually listening to or talking, seeing or. Right. Um, At some point, Michael met a woman online who later moved to Alabama to be with him. Unfortunately, their relationship ended. And despite growing close to Michael's family, they said she didn't show up to his funeral and had not been seen or heard from since his death. Hmm. I don't know what their breakup was like. She wasn't named in the interview. Yeah. But that's kind of odd that she didn't come to the funeral. Yeah. I don't know how recent the breakup was or if it was how like long? Really, yeah, a they bad were really breakup. Together. Yeah. Yeah. I'm assuming since she had moved in with Michael that at some point he had moved out of his parents. I don't know if he moved out before she moved to Alabama or when she moved to Alabama, but he did have an apartment because after his death, his family learned that his apartment lease had expired, though they weren't sure exactly when that occurred um, and how long before his death that had happened. 
because he had apparently been living in his car since it expired, which is what ultimately led him to the Old Knight's Inn, an abandoned and partially burned down motel. Which would have fit what he was doing on his TikTok profile, but maybe not the ideal situation for him. Right. So this Old Knight's Inn is in Bessemer, and he had visited the Old Knight's Inn before, and apparently both his family and Bessemer Police Department had warned him about the dangers of spending time there. Hmm. But his adventurous side and his compassionate nature had drawn him to help the vagrants in the area. They said he would often provide them food and blankets and clothes. That's wonderful to hear. It is really nice. They said he had no history of drug or alcohol. He was adamantly against any kind of drug or alcohol use. He didn't use it, but he was always trying to help other people. Mm. And I guess maybe some of the concern was that that willingness to help other people would maybe lead him into riskier areas and put him in more dangerous situations. Yeah, makes sense. The morning of December 30th started like any other for Michael. He finished his night shift at Amazon, made a stop at Jack's restaurant to presumably grab something to eat, then made his way to the Old Knight's Inn where he planned to grab some shut-eye, I assume. However, approximately 12 hours later, Michael's lifeless body was found inside the Hyundai Sonata he was using while his personal car was being repaired. His wallet was missing, but his cell phone and Amazon employee ID had been left behind. According to Crime Stoppers, there haven't been many tips received in the case. And that's really sad because it's yeah. a more recent case. That car was bright yellow. So you would think right. it, and it's daytime. And it was a rental or, you know. Yeah, it was like a dealer loaned vehicle while his was being repaired. Mm-hmm. It's in the daytime. There's a picture of it in the article. I mean, it's a noticeable car. Yeah. So it's something where, like, if you drive by, you think, like, oh, that's a bright car. You know, you would see it. It's not mm-hmm. just a blend-in kind of car. I wonder how on or off the beaten path the old Knights Inn is. That would be my question, I guess. If it was, like, kind of back in where there wasn't a lot of traffic, maybe it was less likely that people would have seen him. I pulled it up on Google Maps, and it's, like, right next door to Jack's restaurant, which I'm assuming is probably the restaurant that he stopped at. Yeah. But yeah. there's the high school is across the street. To, um, Highway 5920, like, slash 20, is right across from it. So, I mean— Hmm. I feel like it's not right on 5920, obviously, but, you know, I feel like it's right there off the interstate. So you would think that there'd be a good bit of traffic, but there's several larger restaurants there. There's a Walmart super center. There's a hospital, a community college. Uh You would think some, somebody, oh, and the Amazon fulfillment center is like right there. So all this is like very close in proximity. Yeah. I wonder if that's the Amazon he worked at. I'm sure. It just would make sense that all of this is like right there, like a pop, skip, and a jump away. Mm -hmm. So as of right now, Michael's case is still unsolved, and they are really encouraging anybody that has information to call in like we always do. 
So if you have any information on Michael Richards' death, please contact Bessemer Police Department at 205-425-2411, their tip line at 205-428-3541, or you can contact Crime Stoppers at 205-254-7777. You can also submit an anonymous tip on the Crime Stoppers website, which will be linked in the episode description. Since Alabama Cold Case Advocacy's creation, we have dedicated innumerable hours to researching and networking in an effort to provide the largest platform we can to the cases we share. We shoulder all associated expenses with Alabama Cold Case Advocacy out of our own pocket, including the subscription fees for researching and production of the Unforgotten podcast to provide a cost-free avenue for the victims' families of those cases. We hope you will join in our efforts to raise awareness of Alabama's missing and murdered and support these families who have been forced to carry the immeasurable loss of their loved ones and the fight for answers. If you appreciate our mission and you are inspired to make a donation, your extra support will enable the ACCA to continue our research, share the cold cases, and help those families know that they are also unforgotten. Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Spotify for podcasters, available on your favorite podcast platform. Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy. Artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening, and remember, justice may be delayed, but the victims and their families remain unforgotten.